Uh, Toppy, on the way into the theater tonight, I have to tell you that it was it was quite chilly out there, and um, just bone chilling. And I actually saw Gertie on the way in. She was coming in on the bus as she does, but yeah, I I had to pry the poor lady off of the lamp post it was so cold out i had to use my hot coffee thermos to set her free (laughs) tj jesus holy cow that must have been a sight good evening mr smelly how are you this is a fine night oh i am so good i'm feeling occultish i'm feeling like weird like uh cult vibes tonight i don't know why dj maybe we'll find out be sure to put on your tinfoil hats folks you are in for a show and uh there may or may not be cows involved somehow. Cow? <laughs> yes, maybe. So we will turn the spotlight over to the stage where we have our candy counter lady. Gertie, are you in the house? Uh, Gertie, are you here? I'm here for heaven's sakes. I'm always here. Just start the damn thing. Okay, Gertie. Oh, did, all right. <laughs> now the gentleman in the front there has got your cue cards, Gertie. So you got your lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alrighty, let me cue up our little moment here. Oh, I could be at home right now. Oh Jesus! <laughs> oh, trying to. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, <sighs> take it away, Gertie. Everybody, this is a TV show that has a fox in it, and it ran on Fox on Friday nights. <laughs> uh, you know, I used to dress as a fox for this one gentleman in a gentleman's club. <laughs> oh, well, anyways, <laughs> uh, there's a mysterious government types and suits. And unmarked cars, conspiracy theories, sideshow freak, and little gray men. Tonight, we're watching the 90s occult thriller, The X-Files. Hit it! What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of the golden oldies? In a smidgen of streaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your hosts, DJ and Toppy. Welcome, folks, to the beautiful, historic Marionette Theater. Come in, sit down, grab your seats, and uh, please avail yourself of the complimentary blankets. It's a little chilly in here. We may not have paid the bill on time. We're still working that out with the management folks. Folks, the Marinette Theater is a little drafty tonight, so just uh, bundle up. You'll be okay. But, uh, drafty, you say? I I thought we told Gertie not to have chili before she came in. <laughs> no, that's not what I meant, DJ. That's not what I meant. So we are brought together here tonight by our love of film and television trivia. Matinee Minutia is not your ordinary show. We're not going to just be talking about 
the TV show of tonight's subject. No, no, we're going to be getting down to the nitty gritty and we're going to find out what did Gillian Anderson name her children? Oh, in real life? Yes. Oh, I can't wait to find that out because I don't know that. Oh, so we have a few folks that have joined us in the chat room tonight. Um, yeah, let's say hi. Yes. And uh, Mr. Smelly, can you go on the roll call for me there? All right. Let me just take a... Somehow I've gotten off the... Uh, oh, here we are. Listen, look look at that, folks. Look at that. We've got a, a chat room full of people. I'd like to say hello to Chubtastic. I'd like to say hello to Janet. And here's... Uh, li- who, who's that now? Lib- Libby, oh. Libby, Libby Little. No, what's it called? Libertal. Li- I think it's li- Library Lady. Oh, Library Lady. All right. And then there's Tommy. There's our Tommy, our pal. And there's the Shy Yeti. Oh, and there's Billy, your hubby. Ooh. Uh, DJ, your hubby's here. Yes. Yeah, so he is down there in the, the, the feline parlor entertaining those uh, little fur babies. So, all right. Well, as we. Wait a minute. Do we know who Cubtastic is? I think that may be our friend Brent, but I'm not entirely sure. Oh, is sure. that Brent? It could be. I, I know that. Um, Matt is often here, but he usually uses a different name. Yeah, I don't think it's Matt. So, anyways, they'll tell folks, us who they are. It's great to see y'all, <laughs> and I hope you're all ready to hear a whole lot about the X Files. So, we are at the part of the program where I set the stage, as it were. I tell you what's going on in the world at the time of the show now normally if it's a movie it's the world in that year the movie came out however this is a long-running tv show so i couldn't possibly cover the nine plus years it was on i'm just going to give you a glimpse at the world in 1993 when the x-files first debuted on fox That was a long time ago. It was. It's hard to remember just how long ago this damn show started. Uh, tell us all about it, DJ. All right. So in 1993, Bill Clinton was sworn in as the 42nd president. Yeah. The World Trade Center was bombed for the first time. Oh, the first one. The yes. First one. Uh, I think that that involved a delivery truck with a, a, a fertilizer bomb at the time. Yeah, down down in the basement. Right. Rodney King was arrested in Los Angeles, which eventually resulted in a lot of rioting. He was an African-American gentleman, and there was a question about uh, if he was profiled. Uh, let's see. Intel, the the uh, computer processor chip company, shipped <laughs> their first Pentium chips. Yes. And then we also have an executive order allowing women to fly warplanes was enacted. The Clintons' don't ask, don't tell policy was instated. So yeah. b- before then, uh, you basically could not be homosexual and in the armed forces. If it was uh. found out that uh, you weren't a, a heterosexual, you were basically dismissed. And with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you could at least lead your life in private, although some might say 
that wasn't, uh, you know, a life of liberty. Well, at the time when this was passed, uh, us gays said, okay, Clinton, pat, pat, pat you on the back, but that was sort of half-assed. But anyways. And then uh, also in 93, Microsoft's first business operating system was released, Windows NT 3.1. The, uh, the Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act was passed, uh, trying to restrict uh, handgun ownership, and it required background checks that were not part of home, uh, gun ownership before then. Right. Brady, if you remember, is the guy that sort of got in the way of uh, President Reagan during his assassination attempt, and he, well, I guess he was shot in the head and he had brain damage. Uh, but he lived, and he passed this legislation. That was a, God, jeepers, that was a long time. And then lastly in 93, the Space Shuttle Endeavor was launched to repair the Hubble telescope. And this was a big to-do because, you know, they, they had launched the Hubble telescope, I want to say possibly five to ten years before not realizing that there was an imperfection in the mirror until it was in space already. And yeah. they had to put a task force together to figure out how in the world are we going to save our tax dollars when we already put the thing in orbit? Yes, that was a major snafu at the time that everyone just thought that it was a big uh, Homer Simpson Don't! moment it really and uh, normally i tell you about the other films that were out the same year but since we're talking about television i'll just give you a brief glimpse at the other things on tv when the x-files right, cool. was new yeah. so we have in 93 ending a long run was cheers on nbc Jesus, it went on forever. And then on CBS, Knott's Landing had its final season. Yes! I was a Knott's Landing fan, DJ. Mm, that was a spinoff of Dallas, I do believe. Yes, it was. And then also Designing Women was in its final year. And then Jeepers. also, that, and that was on CBS as well. And then on ABC, Doogie Howser was in its last season. And ah. on NBC, Quantum Leap. So we had a bunch of shows that were ending. And Fox was relatively new. I think that Married with Children was one of its first programs, followed by The Simpsons. And The X-Files was a, uh, a, an opportunity for them to start something when a lot of long-running shows were ending. Uh, also new that year was Frasier on NBC. You had the groundbreaking NYPD Blue on ABC. Now, I don't know about any of you folks, but uh, NYPD Blue was kind of special to me because at the time... There was next to no nudity allowed until a certain hour on TV. And oh, you wanted to see that guy's butt. Yes. Uh, you wanted to see. I'm, I'm forgetting his name. He's a David. I am too. I am too. <laughs> David, I think his name was David Caruso. He was a red-haired gentleman. And yeah. uh, it was a locker room scene. Everybody knows about it. But uh, he put the blue in NYPD blue. Uh, we of. also have Walker, Texas Ranger on CBS was new that year. Oh, DJ, we should just say that NYPD Blue was a network show, and, and I believe it aired at 10 
Mm-hmm. Maybe nine, but probably. Hence the uh, somewhat it, less restricted. <laughs> yeah, it pushed. Uh, it was one of those early shows that pushed uh, what TV could get away with um, at the time. And I don't, I don't really know how they did it, but they did. They had some butt shots on network TV. <laughs> it was all about equality in the 90s. Um, so we had Walker, Texas Ranger was new on CBS. The Nanny also on CBS was new that year. Hey, Nanny, I'm a Nanny. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> then we have on ABC was Grace Under Fire with my personal favorite comic, Brett Butler. You have uh, also uh, ending out 93, brand new in the sci-fi realm was Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And yeah. then on NBC was Roy Scheider, who was famous from Jaws. He was the captain of a submarine called the Sequest DSV. <laughs> DJ, did you ever get into that show? Oh, my goodness. The event we're going to this next weekend, uh, mm-hmm. when it got started in the the mid to late 90s, Sequest was new on the air, and the, uh, the actor who played the teen heartthrob on that show was one of their early guests. Yeah. What was who was I can't remember Brolin Josh? Um, no, and uh, unfortunately, he's one of those child actors who has since passed on. But he oh, was geez. in Neverending Story, and uh, let me just look that up here, and then we will go right into the X Files here. Um, Lady Janet might be able to tell Janet. us. Well, she says Jonathan Brandis. Yes, Jonathan Brandis was the teen heartthrob on Sequest DSV. And this is okay. a uh, a child actor who in later days, uh, after Sequest was off the air, he had an opportunity to actually enter a new chapter into his career. He was considered to play the young adult version of Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars prequels. However, he lost out the role to Hayden Christian. And mm-hmm. um, of course, it just went all downhill from there. You can, I, I won't paint the picture for you folks. It's its not a happy ending. But if you're interested, look up Jonathan Brandis. He was the teen heartthrob from the 90s sci-fi series Sequest. Mm-hmm. And that right there, DJ, that's why we are all about trivia yes sir right here on matinee now we have a laundry list of people that came together for the show that we are talking about tonight toppy tell me about some of the people who are in the cast well the main two uh was uh david decoven did i say that right you did (laughs) (laughs) uh and um Jillian Anderson. Did I say that right? You did. Because I, I always wondered if it was Gillian. <laughs> Anyways, uh, these two kids. I saw something amazing uh, that Gillian, Jillian Anderson was 24 when she started out on this TV series. Can you believe that? Oh, yeah. She was quite the young thing in the pilot episode. Um, oftentimes, a pilot is made sort of like a, a TV movie. They they have a script and they're trying to pitch it to the network. And uh, once the network is sold on the idea, that's when they get what they call greenlit to do an entire series. So sometimes there's as much as six months to a year 
between when the pilot is filmed and when they they perfect the look for what they're going to do for the series. Right. And some of those changes uh, took place between there. mm -hmm. So Duchovny was working in Los Angeles for like three years, just trying to get jobs as an actor. And, uh, and he wanted, you know, he was hoping to get into feature films, but in 1993, his manager, Melanie Green gave him the script for the pilot episode of the X file. And they both, the, the agent and the company, they said, Oh my God, this is a good script. And so he auditioned for the lead and Duchovny thought his his audition was terrific, uh, but nobody else did, except for the creator of the show, Chris Carter. And he was the only one who thought, oh, my God, Duchovny is Fox Mulder. And that's pretty much why he got the role. It's because Chris Carter said, that's it. Well, and it probably- Because nobody else. Nobody else thought Duchovny was. Well, and the Chris Carter probably also thought that David Duchovny was perfect for the role because just before they picked him up for the X-Files, he had had a few brief appearances on a similar show called Twin Peaks. Wait, say that again. Yeah, uh, David Duchovny, star of the X-Files. He was on Twin Peaks? He had, I think it was about three appearances during the run of Twin Peaks. I don't, oh my God! I swear, I, I I have no memory of that at all. And I was a lover of Twin Peaks, but I guess I probably just didn't know his face back. Well, and considering that he was quite young, I mean, this is one of those scenarios where I'm watching it, and uh, you know, I don't have kids; they're not in school. I didn't go to a graduation recently, so sometimes mm-hmm. you have those little moments in life that remind you of your age. And I'm watching the pilot episode of the X-Files and I'm realizing, wait, I'm older than he is when he's filming this. <laughs> so, so he yeah. was all of 33 when he did the X-Files. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, it seems like uh, it was either done just before the X-Files or it was released at the same time as the X-Files. David Duchovny had sort of a softcore porn uh, series that was released on Showtime called The Red Shoe Diaries. Woo! 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 woo. And, and it was basically a, a, an erotic confessions show. He was a character that uh, had people write letters to him, and I think he might have been uh, producing a, a magazine or some sort of print publication and that was the the shtick of the the series was people t- telling their their dirty laundry and um i just remember of course because we only had basic cable that uh, i would see in the the tv guide you know back when they would put that in the paper every week sure. <laughs> yeah i saw something that had a a a a titillating title called the red shoe diaries and i'm like oh I have to watch that. I sort of remember that. You want to know something else? This is neither here nor there, but I seem to remember press clips about Duchovny having a sex addiction, a addiction problem. And I, 
I don't know if that was made up. I just remember that for a while that was a thing. Duchovny had a sex addiction problem and he sought help for it and got healed. I don't know. Well, I just remember something about that. That plays a little bit into his part, though, Fox Mulder, because there were, um, you know, certain situations, and this is how a, a TV show gets to be called a sitcom is a situational comedy where, you know, you, you have the the smart lady that he's working with and she comes in and it was a well-known fact uh, by anyone who was a, a longtime fan of the X-Files that Fox Mulder, well, he, he had a, a problem with dirty magazines Oh, that's right. That was part of his character. Yes, and I just what he looked at porn. That was referenced in that time. <laughs> and it, it it was almost a painful guffaw moment. I'm watching one of the first season episodes, and he's at his desk, and it just so happens that the subject of the the magazine was like a murder victim or something. But Scully walks in with him holding the magazine. And, of course, she deadpans the line, hard at work, Mulder? Yes. <laughs> I, I think I think I recently just saw that. Let's get down to brass dicks, nails, DJ. Yeah. Uh, the X-Files was a show that, that um, was on uh, the Fox Network. And I got to tell you, when... When I first checked it out, I saw what looked like a videotaped opening for the show. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I said, boy, does this look cheap. Well, as a matter of fact, the producers intended the opening to look like video. I didn't get that at the time. I just thought, this looks like some stupid syndicated show that I'm not interested in. And so I never watched it until years later when it was much later on in the run. And I finally started watching it and got hooked and realized, God damn, this is a good show. I've missed out all these years. Mm. How did you come across it? Well, it was a convenient time, really. I mean, uh, 93, I was, oh, just leaving junior high, going into high school. And uh, I was freshly indoctrinated into sci-fi fandom because the 25th anniversary of Star Trek had just happened. And I was hungry for something new to watch. So, of course, Deep Space Nine was coming on. But uh, my father also loved old classic sci-fi movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still. And The X-Files seemed to play right into that for him because it wasn't a specific brand of sci-fi. It was sort of everyday ordinary people. And if you think about it, Fox Mulder is sort of the, the evolution of the old school sci-fi fan. You know, um, I'm sure you you remember the days when people used to pretty much call Star Trek fans the the kid that never left their parents' basement. And, okay. you know, Fox Mulder is a guy who wears a suit to work, but yet he's into the paranormal, the occult, and it just so happens that his sister was abducted. So... 
you know, we, we now have somebody who we could take a little bit more seriously because he works for the government. Right. So the premise of the series very shortly is that here's an FBI agent, Fox Mulder. When he was a kid, his sister was abducted. He has a lifelong obsession with that event that leads him to explore many occult themes. And in the FBI, he develops a history and an expertise in understanding the motivations of killers. There's another word for that that I can't think of. At any rate, Mulder is considered an expert in understanding the psychology behind killers. But he also has a reputation for this occult stuff. And people in the FBI call him spooky. And he's kind of weird. And they finally find a place for Mulder and it's in the X-Files. The X-Files are cases that are filed away, literally, uh, because they just can't be explained. And conveniently, they... Go ahead. Well, Fox is in charge of it, and the FBI is a little apprehensive about this move, and they hire... They bring in uh, uh, Scully to kind of keep an eye on Mulder. And that's how it all begins. That was Scully saying, you're my touchstone, and Mulder saying, you are mine. And that was the evolution uh, of the relationship, which was primary to this television series of how Mulder and Scully came together and worked as a team. And I got to tell you, it made all the difference in this TV show because you cared. Yes, and um, the, cared about them. And uh, the the composer who wrote the music, Mr. Mark Snow, he reported that the producer, Chris Carter, didn't originally like the first version of the song that he put together. And uh, on one of the attempts he made, he forgot that he had left a special effect on his keyboard, the the echo. And uh, it also turns out that Mark Snow's wife is an accomplished whistler. So uh, the whistling that you hear in the theme of the X-Files is that of the wife of Mark Snow, the composer. Are you shitting me? <laughs> no. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to swear on the show. I, honest to God, thought that was just, you know, uh, a, a synthetic thing. <laughs> That's amazing. Let's see, now also, trying to get my computer reply here. Also, Mark Snow was an accomplished uh, composer. Uh, this, this means it's good, a uh, good time to go fill your class and... Uh, and we'll be back in about three minutes. Several other programs, and uh, I'm just trying to get to my info here. 
He also wrote music uh, many years before The X-Files for the 70s TV sitcom Heart to Heart. And uh, he did music for William Shatner's police TV show, T.J. Hooker. And after The X-Files had its run, he did uh, music for, I want to say it was uh, the WB, which became the CW. He did Smallville, which was the Superman TV show. Yeah. And uh, Hunt Cub, we are looking in the chat. And we are watching watching what you said uh, in the chat. I don't. I'm not sure I'm following everything because Tommy recently called Billy a fucktard. But I'm I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure why that happened. But anyways, uh, we we are keeping an eye on the chat. <laughs> yeah, we we had a couple of momentary delays where we were flipping between uh, clips and and different sources here. So, Toppy, um, the '90s when the X Files came out was a very interesting time frame because, uh, sort of as a result of the X Files, a lot of other programs came into vogue. Now, uh, within uh, just a few years here, uh, actually the same year as X-Files debut in 93, we had a film called Fire in the Sky, which actually depicted a UFO abduction. And uh, I'm forgetting the name, but it actually starred the actor who was the young boy in E.T., Steven Spielberg's film. He was Uh all grown up. And he was the victim of an alien abduction experience. Now, also within a couple of years of The X-Files, on Fox as well, we got another sort of a conspiracy theory TV show with government types. We had VR5, which starred um, Louise Fletcher, who was the nurse on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She played the mother in this series where um, her husband was a brilliant scientist working with virtual reality in the early days. And it just goes from there. We also have a 96 Independence Day, certainly uh, launching careers further with Will Smith. And you have Men in Black in 97. And it's quite interesting if you think about it, because within two decades of the infamous Roswell incident, any someone who would have been born that year, which was 1947, would have been old enough to have voted uh, and... Uh, at the time that the Freedom of Information Act was passed, the original one during the Johnson administration. Mm-hmm. And then just within five years of the Freedom of Information Act, the infamous Hill abduction of Betty and Barney Hill in New Hampshire uh, came to light. Yeah. And this was a very important moment for people who've experienced uh, a paranormal phenomenon because Up until this moment, we didn't have a government employee, which Barney Hill was a postal worker, and he uh, gave a testimony under hypnosis of this loss of time phenomenon, which is talked about a lot in the X-Files. Well, the whole story that came out of Barney the Barney Hill, Barney and Betty Hill, sir, was the classic alien abduction. And it kind of, I don't know, kind of solidified the whole thing. 
And uh, I got to tell you, there was a made-for-television movie that starred James Earl Jones. And I saw that as a kid, I don't know, sometime in the 70s. And it scared the living bejesus out of me. (laughs) Oh, my God. The story of Betty and Barney Hill on TV with James Earl Jones. Oh, my God. I I barely survived. (laughs) No, I I think that that was uh, James Earl Jones playing the role of Barney Hill in that, right? Yes. Yes, yes. Okay. So, yes, uh, the the Betty and Barney Hill abduction story brought to light the alien abduction experience and and, uh, made it taken a little bit more seriously because he was a postal worker. And uh, within three years of the X-Files, President Clinton signed the Electronic Freedom of Information Act. So that certainly added to the mystery of the X-Files, and they had a lot of computer use on the X-Files. And, of course, being somebody that has a technical background, looking back at this show from the 90s, I could see that those really weren't computers the government was using at the time, but it looked good for TV. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of funny things about that, DJ, because... uh as Mulder and Scully were out of their cases, they would always call each other. And this was at the advent of cell phones. And so they would pull out their little phone and then pull the antenna the antenna out on their cell phone. And they would uh, talk to each other. And even funnier was when they were in their apartments on their landline landline phones with their cordless phone. These goddamn phones were huge. (laughs) Anyways, it's just a funny thing when you look back on that series to see them with these gigantic phones um... But anyway, well, yeah, they they had the flip phones with the, you know, as you were saying, the pull out antennas. And I remember seeing an episode where Scully was saying to Mulder, I can't imagine you without your cell phone. And I'm just thinking back to that point in time. We weren't even sending text messages yet. Yeah. No, no, we weren't. We weren't. Because the the uh, the phones that they used on camera didn't even have any sort of a display. There wasn't even caller ID at that time. <laughs> no, nothing like that. So, but one of the one of the things you know that made the series seem as up to date as possible was because they had their characters talking to each other on these cell phones, and quite frequently, uh, Scully and Mulder were separate parts, and a lot of their scenes were in these phone calls on cell phone to each other. Now, Toppy, I'm not sure if you knew about this, but of course. We were talking about the cast and uh, Gillian Anderson, who was quite the young thing when she uh, started working on the X-Files. She had to lie about her age to the studio for her to be taken seriously. I didn't know that. And uh, even though her character is a redhead, she herself is a natural blonde. So in the more recent years where they they produced two more seasons of the X-Files... Gillian Anderson opted to wear a wig because she was going to be working on a film where she was to be her natural blondness. Mm-hmm. So also, um, Gillian Anderson may have been to your neck of the woods. Now, she's a Chicago native, 
But in 1987, her love of theater took her to the National Theater of Great Britain summer acting program, which was held pretty near Pickle Hollow. Really? Yes. And uh, because she is somebody who loves uh, acting and comedy, of course, she named her two sons Oscar and Felix in uh, in, uh, honor of the odd couple. And, uh, Ah! you know, actually, um, that's weird. One of the actors from the odd couple just recently passed on. He, He lived a long and celebrated life, but uh, I'm uh, the name uh-huh. escapes me at the moment. But uh, Gillian Anderson was the first actress to receive an Emmy, a Golden Globe, and a SAG Award all in the same year. Was it for X Files? Yes. Okay, that's what I want to say. Is that uh, look, this show had excellent performance by both by by all the actors. This, this, you look into this and every week, terrific performances, and they were records you just heard, um, and given awards. And it made, I mean, it made this show what it was. It was the relationship in these two characters and what they would go through week. And you just freaking cared about them. And that was why you tuned in every Now, originally, when they were casting for the, the uh, parts, they didn't have somebody of Gillian Anderson's body type uh, in mind. They wanted somebody who was a, a little more statuesque. They wanted a, a model type because they, they kind of wanted a leggy blonde, a, a Pamela Anderson type. But Chris Carter really liked Gillian Anderson's performance, and he actually fed her, uh, well, suggestions on how she could improve her audition. So that's how she got the part, was that Chris Carter was already won over, but he had to uh, help her talk to studio into giving her the job. Yeah, I heard about that. It's funny how they they were actually both doubted as they come on to the show but soon after everyone knew this is it these are the people we needed to have and the two actors developed the chemistry they developed and it was all over i mean people knew this this works and you could see it on the screen every week in the chat room hubby billy mentions that uh, the action figures for the show had cell phones. And when you put them in their hands, they almost made the figure fall over because they were so heavy. Uh, and, the, the, uh, and of course, there was always a dead body on the X-Files. So they had a toy that was a, cor- a corpse figure. And it had an alien you could carve out of the rubber stomach it was molded into. <laughs> e- oh, they had... Oh, wow. Can we talk about the special effects and the practical effects they had to come up with? Oh, absolutely. Uh, every week, you know, the slime. They must have had buckets of slime always ready. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, you know, I have to say, for a weekly television series, let's face it, when they had to do this, they had about seven days to complete an entire show it would be nice if they did in six <laughs> but it was an extraordinary accomplishment that they could do the things that they did in that amount of time 
make them look as good as they could and uh, just uh, polish it off the way they did. And it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for anyone. In fact, this is one of those TV shows that had a production schedule that really took its toll on everyone involved. Too many hours, too many late hours. And as the show went on, both stars, you know, basically said, okay, I'll go, you know, hey, if you want me for another season, that's great. Pay me a lot of money. But remember, I'd really like to work less. Yeah. And, and that's because they were so physically taxed well, if you for think, so many years. If and you think about when it. they got more power. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, if you think about it, back then, it wasn't uncommon for a TV show to have between 20, 25 episodes. A year only has 52 weeks. So when did they get a day off? Well, this was the thing. Eventually, what happened was that the actors got new contracts and they said, look, we'll we'll continue to be involved in this very successful television series, but you got to play us right. And for one thing, can we stop filming in Vermont? <laughs> and so... One of the things they did late on was, okay, uh, let's film in L.A. So they Vermont Actually, made them uh, 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 film things in extreme conditions. There were so many scenes where you could see the breath of these actors, and you would know, fuck, whatever they were filming, it was really cold. Well, you're getting the... You're getting you're getting yeah. the V letter correct, but it, it's actually Vancouver, Toppy. Okay, I'm sorry, Vancouver. That's okay. And uh, they filmed there for years, and finally the actor said, can we just, this is just too much. And they went to L.A., and both actors figured out ways that they could spend less time on the series. And that's why eventually there was a bit of a cast change and towards the end of the series, you had new characters come in. They took up a lot of time on screen. Uh, David Duchovny was virtually written out for a while. And uh, so was Gillian uh, Anderson to a certain extent. She stayed in there longer. And the producers knew all along that as it ended, they would bring both of them back. It was all planned. And... At the very end of the series, both stars came back and they concluded this entire mystery about Scully's baby and blah, blah, blah. And uh, they had what they thought was a great finish that a lot of people criticized. But the show ended with kind of a spectacular, uh, serialized uh, I don't know, eight or nine episodes that led up to the end. It finally finished. And some people were really happy with it. Others thought like, oh, but uh, the show went out with kind of a kind of a spectacular. Now, before the show was over and you were already talking about this, 
they changed their filming location. They they moved from Vancouver down to the Los Angeles area. Now, yeah. uh, they were also filming at night because there were a lot of nighttime scenes in some of the cases. And uh, part of the problems that occurred during those early days of their run were because people were out all hours filming the show, they would get home at the wee hours of the morning. And some of the production staff may have gotten into a little bit of trouble with having difficulty driving home. And uh, this may or may not have resulted in... uh, someone being brought up on charges possibly involving bodily harm and the studio just figured well that's too great a liability we're gonna have to change our shooting schedule well all i know it was very demanding on the actors and as the show went on they contractually negotiated ways that they could be taxed less um and that's why you got the other actors that came in um, towards them, why you saw much less so. And it, it just must have been a terribly, on a week-to-week basis, I just can't imagine the schedule involved in trying to pull off one episode a week like that, to film it and do it. And it, it must have been very terrible. Well, I, I know that a uh, another actor that worked... During that time frame, Kate Mulgrew, who was involved with many other things, including Star Trek Voyager, um, in her autobiography, which I think was called Born with Teeth, she uh, recalled memories of that time frame and the demands of the filming schedule were so strict and taxing that she barely got to see her family and it estranged her children from her for a long time. Yeah. This was not uncommon on TV work because you would put in uh, 10, uh, 12, 13-hour days, and especially the X-Files because they did so much filming during the night. It was just like, oh, my God, Uh, they did it, and they had to. Everybody did it, but it was taxing. Um, and when they went to L.A., it was just easier on everyone because, well, L.A. is where they did alt. Now, I don't know about you, but everybody had their own reasons for what made them interested in the X-Files. Some people tuned in to watch the Monster of the Week. Some people tuned in to watch the Tales of the Fantastic because you also had, well, for lack of a better term, the Sideshow Freak episodes now i of course watched it for the the tales of the you know the little green men or gray men and uh, apparently there were a total of 69 episodes during the course of the show's run that involved aliens or alien abduction and each of those episodes had a first scene opening of a starry night sky and I don't know if you caught it the other night, Toppy. I was looking out my window in the wee hours of the morning before the sun rose, but we had a beautiful moon out the other night, and there were two bright objects in the sky. And I was listening to the radio, and it explained that uh, here in the Northeast, we were able to see Venus and Jupiter on either sides of the moon, and it was just breathtaking. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. before we finish yeah, that, out here, I was just going to mention that uh, one of the long-running characters through the course of the series was sort of a mystery man. He was a government agent that some that uh, just nicknamed him as Smoking Man, or he also was known as Cigarette Smoking Man, or uh, less, man. yeah, less sensitively Cancer Man, which I think we've uh, a few pe- fewer people are calling him that. But the actor, William B. Davis, that played Smoking Man, was a, a Canadian actor. Coincidentally, he quit smoking in the late 70s. And ah. you know, after uh, the first season or two of playing his character, he, he was smoking real cigarettes. And well, he politely asked the uh, studio, can, can we switch these? Because his character wasn't supposed to stick around, but he was very popular. And they decided to keep him in. And he said, "If I, look, if I'm going to stick around, we're going to have to switch these out. I can't, you know, I, I can't revisit old habits here. But uh, William B. Davis was also a former drama professor. He ran his own acting school in Canada. So, Toppy, we are at the part of the show where we uh, gather our thoughts about the overall themes of the show, what we liked, maybe what we didn't like. And, uh, you know, to to put it bluntly, if you were stuck in the middle of nowhere, you were off the grid, you were going to your cabin to escape for the weekend, and you've got your overnight bag packed, would you have a few episodes of The X-Files with you? Well... I got to tell you, the overall arching story as it progressed over the years was very attractive and really cared about these guys. And I got to say, that might make me pack a few of these, if not all of them, (laughs) in my little knapsack if I had to go away. It was that good. I would have to agree. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, since it would be in a cabin in the woods, just like when the show was in its original run, I'd have to have all the lights on because there are certainly a fair share of, uh, to, uh, to coin the, uh, you know, character's nickname, spooky episodes. (laughs) Well, that was the wonderful thing about the show is that the writers realized that they could be very heavy, very dark, very serious. But they could also have episodes that were filled with humor and were quirky and were just kind of goofy. And they had this wonderful mix of stories that reigned all across the spectrum. And that was a really nice attribute of the series. DJ, can we play that, uh, that one clip uh, that's supposed to be the half hour mark? And it's a conversation between Scully and Mulder. That sort of, I don't know. I would say capsulizes their relationship. Can we play? Sure. And then uh, for the folks in our audience, stick around here. We'll be giving you a few breadcrumbs towards our next little show. Hey, Scully, do you think you could ever cannibalize someone? I mean, if you really had to. Well, as much as the very idea is a bore to me, I suppose under certain conditions, a living entity is practically conditioned to perform whatever extreme measures are necessary to ensure its survival. I suppose I'm no different. You've lost some weight recently, haven't you? Yeah, actually, I have. Thanks. 
but it is amazing what some animals will do to guarantee the continuation of the species, isn't it? I mean, a creature of the one of this size must have adapted its behavior and its chances of being seen by its only predator, us. It's coming closer to shore for its prey must be an act of desperation on its part. Poor Queequeg. Why did you name the dog Queequeg? It was the name of the harpoonist in Moby Dick. My father used to read to me from Moby Dick when I was a little girl, and I called him Ahab, and he called me Starbuck. So I named my dog Queequeg. It's funny, I just realized something. It's a bizarre name for a dog, huh? No. How much you're like Ahab. You're so consumed by your personal vengeance against life, whether it be its inherent cruelties or its mysteries, that everything takes on a, a, a warped significance to fit your megalomaniacal cosmology. Skelly, are you coming on to me? It's just the truth or a white whale. What difference does it make? I mean, both, both obsessions are impossible to capture, and, and trying to do so will only leave you dead along with everyone else you bring with you. You know, Mulder, you are Ahab. You know, it's interesting you should say that because I've always wanted a peg leg. It's a boyhood thing I never grew out of. No, I'm not being flippant. I mean, uh, I've given this a lot of thought. If, if you have a peg leg or hooks for hands, you know, maybe it's enough to simply carry on living, you know, bravely facing life with your disability. It's heroic just to survive, but it, without these things, you're actually expected to make something of your life, achieve something, earn a raise, wear a necktie. So, so, so if, if anything, I'm actually the antithesis of Ahab because if I did have a peg leg, I'd quite more happy and more content not feel the need to chase after these creatures of the unknown. And that's not flippant? No, no. Flippant is my favorite line from Moby Dick. Hell is an idea first born on an undigested apple dumpling. Yeah. And <laughs> Shall I let the rest play or you want me to stop? I think. What was that? I don't know, but it ain't no duck. <laughs> that, that was just the end of the scene. <laughs> they were stranded on an island and they had a moment to talk and then at the end the menace was creeping up on at any rate <laughs> the show succeeded on the basis of this relationship and uh, and that's why it went on for so many years and spawned two feature length movies uh, motion pictures in the theater and is still active today, I guess, because they revived it recently with two recent uh, big chunks of episode seven and seven uh, recently uh, with the same actors. And whether it'll happen again, I don't know, but uh, it certainly speaks to uh, how much people loved these two characters watching them interact so it's that time of the show we're gonna rev up the old machine here sir and uh, let our listeners know what's coming down the pike are you ready for that yeah uh here we go Ooh. now that one ended up on my side of the desk here sir so you want me to go ahead and read what's in that capsule Yes, explain it to us. Alrighty here, so let me get this geared up. I'm opening up the, the little capsule here, and oh, this is a good one. Alright, folks, let me tell you what I've got in this capsule. 
Why, it's a 1987 film, and this has just a boatload of actors in it. It's got Andrew McCarthy, fresh off the John Hughes films. It's got Kim Cattrall, who will later be in Sex and the City. And it has Estelle Getty in it from the Golden Girls. She oh my plays... god, is it, is it a TV series or a movie? It's a movie. We're going to be watching the 1987 film Mannequin. Ah! <laughs> no, please, no. With a soundtrack partially by the talents of one Grace Slick in uh, the band that would later become known just simply as Starship because, you know, it was the 80s and everything was space-related. Oh, my God. Things gonna stop BJ, now. I did not see Mannequin, but I'm gonna look forward to the experience. <laughs> and uh, this will be a special Valentine's Day edition of Matinee Minutia. Ooh. Our next episode will be in two weeks on Friday, February 15th, and we're going to have a special guest with us. Should I tell him who it's going to be? No. No. Go ahead and tell. Okay, well, we're going to have friend of the show and fellow member of the Univaz family of programming, Mr. Matt Burlingame of Chubbs Gone Wild will be joining us. He recently confessed that Mannequin was one of his favorite films, too. So we're going to pull up a chair and we're going to sit and chat about it on our next show. So... Uh, no, that's good. Please join us on that night. And as always, it's at 9 p.m. Eastern at univazpods.net. So we will say good night, Gracie. Good night, uh, Gracie. And uh, yeah. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our program is live every other Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Go to univazpods.net. Click the tower for streaming audio. Enter Discord for our chat room. You can find this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Join our Facebook group or visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Have an idea for a future show or just want to message us? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univazpods.net.